Torrent Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North and welcome to the Forum and a new show in our Polar Mystery Series. Forks, today you will get your paradigm properly challenged. Now, before you conclude that we've fallen into the abyss of lunacy, let me remind you that any theory that can be argued consistently, point to evidence and find room within established facts without having to turn everything upside down must be researched with our scientifically investigative mind. Otherwise, we're mistaking reason for emotionally based bias. Maybe surprisingly, but unlike the flat earth theory, the hollow earth theory actually has several things going for it. Naturally, this doesn't mean that it's correct, but we will never know unless we bother to explore it and try to falsify or verify it. Luckily for us, someone bothers. That's our guest tonight, who will help us understand this theory, for it is a theory and not a mere hypothesis. And as an intellectual exercise, go through the main points to see how it holds up. Of course, even if we adopt this as a new model of our Earth, we cannot know for sure, no matter how convincing it seems. Only boots on the ground research will reveal the truth. And again, our guest may very well be that person. I'm referring to the seven-time Amazon best-selling author and renowned public speaker Dr. Brooks Alexander Agnew. He's one of those guests where the CV is so large that it cannot be properly accounted for, even in our meticulous presentation. So, I will give you the highlights here, and the remaining details will be put up at his presentation page on our website when we finally get around to it. Our guest descends from the Agnew and Ross clans of ancient Scotland, who shared the defence of Roslyn and the region of Galloway. He was born in 1955, raised in Pasadena, California, as the son of a NASA contract engineer, where he spent his youth hanging around Caltech and Jet Propulsion Labs, where his early interest in space exploration inspired him. He was assisting with lab research at UCLA's Brain Research Institute at age 16. Agnew entered the Air Force in 1973. In 74, he graduated second in his electrical engineering class at Community College of the Air Force Associates as a precision measuring equipment laboratory specialist. After earning an honorable discharge, he began his studies at University of North Dakota, continued in 75 to Brigham Young University, then to Western Kentucky University, and finally to Tennessee Technological University, where he in 94 received his bachelor's in chemistry and mathematics, when graduating with honors in the top 0.1% of senior graduates. In 98, he got his master's degree in quality management and statistics from Kennedy Western University. In 2000, he completed courses for doctorates in physics and was awarded his PhD with honors through Tennessee Technological University and with advanced degrees in quality and physics from extension universities with disruptive manufacturing and energy technology. 
technologies and earth tomography. He also graduated first in his class and gave its valedictorian for entrepreneurial studies at the Tennessee Tech School of Business. With rank of six sigma black belts, Dr. Agnew is a certified quality engineer and a multi-patented. For instance, he's been a successful pioneer with inventing mobile gamma quadrupole spectroscopy and also ground probing radar, which is currently utilized in the Mars Express program. He designed the VMC drive system and produced the world's first DOT-approved light electric truck, launching the first continuous manufacturing system for biodiesel from oil seeds, and later designing an Algae biodiesel production facility for the Department of Energy. Indeed, he holds numerous patents, trade secrets, and proprietary knowledge in several industries, including chemistry, chemical engineering, subspace communications, electrical vehicle technology, architecture, and financial instruments for securitization. He has authored thousands of technical and scientific papers, booklets and documentaries. Brooks Agnew has worked as instructor of mathematics at Gaston College, professorial assistant with environmental chemistry at Tennessee Technological University and instructed graduate students at Western Kentucky University in the field of instrumental analysis. He is a multilingual fellow of the School of Science and Designed Innovation at New Earth University. His professional career as a commercial scientist with numerous Fortune 100 companies includes more than five years in oil and gas exploration and 25 years in the manufacturing industry. He was consultant to Toyota, General Motors, Chrysler and Nissan, but eventually retired from full-time employment as an engineer for the automotive industry when, in 2009, after founding his own EV company, where he currently is CEO, and has worked tirelessly to create affordable, clean and renewable energy. He is a member of American Chemical Society, American Society of Mechanical Engineers, Scoutmaster with Boy Scouts of America, IEEE Remote Sensing Society, MENSA, American Society for Certified Quality Engineers, Society of Automotive Engineering, a chairman of construction for Hamblin County Habeat of Humanity and has cooperated with Pure Energy Systems, New Energy Congress and the Global Breakthrough Energy Movement and has been a public speaker at numerous conferences and scientific documentaries, notwithstanding as an harp expert scientist. In media, he's been featured in programs such as the documentary on harp called Holes in Heaven, Lost Lightning, The Missing Secrets of Nikola Tesla, Joe Rogan Questions Everything, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Syrett, Journey to the Center of the Earth, Conspiracy Theory with Jesse Ventura, Watchers 9, Phenomenon the Lost Archives, Watchers 5, Let Me In, to name some, and has appeared at History Channel, Discovery Channel, Science Channel, True TV, National Geographic, etc., as well as hundreds of radio programs and podcasts. Indeed, he hosts his own radio show called X Squared Radio every Sunday for the last 14 years, where he speaks with top authorities on the mysteries of the Earth and the universe. With a number one bestseller, Brooks Agnew is author of 10 non-fiction books on topics such as 
spirituality, science and politics, challenging the foundations of science and religion. He believes in the unlimited potential of mankind and is supportive of community ideas that work together in a sustainable manner. He currently resides with his family in North Carolina, whence he travels the world teaching, consulting and lecturing. But more than anything, Brooks is a Renaissance man with a passion for discovery. One of the most interesting projects he's involved with is the North Pole Inner Earth Expedition, where he is scientific project director. And since the adventurer Steve Curry suddenly died right before their 06 venture, Brooks replaced him as expedition leader. He is the right man at the right time, as he for decades has explored to scientifically investigate clues if Earth might have developed as a hollow sphere. The evidence leaves in question its true planetary core geology. NPIEE aimed to raise funds for a scientific research expedition to the pole to discover if a certain region above the Arctic Circle has an oceanic depression or entrance into the hollow center of the Earth. This is by far the most innovative and courageous exploration effort in modern times. When we have ceased moon landings and are years away from manned explorations to Mars, this expedition is possible and within reach. It's just a question of finances. If they succeed, the world's largest nuclear icebreaker will host a team of 100 scientists, teachers, filmmakers, going further than anyone ever has into the Arctic ice, documented as a major TV series that will reveal to millions who follow this project. What is the true nature of this age-old mystery? The science is ready, the public is receptive, the mission is extraordinary and bold enough to make history. Welcome to Forum Borealis Brooks. Thank you so much, Al. How are you? Now, I'm very, very excellent because I've been I've been, ever since we started this show, I've been having in the back of my head that at some point we gotta cover this subject and we gotta do it with you. But alas, it's been a very hard way of getting you on. And it's not just your fault. I mean, we've had some misunderstandings with timing and all that. But you know, I think it worked very well because we've massaged people, like you know, I've told you about this Antarctica show we had with Mr. Cliff High. And we kind of prepared the ground for what we're going to do today. And I have to say, people, you know, most of the listeners, you know this, that in this show, we're not here to shovel our opinion down your throats. We're here to help you, educate you about what's out there. We're here to entertain scenarios intellectually. We're here to broaden our mind and indeed our paradigm. And I think we're really pushing it for... Many people, many people will, will think today when they hear this topic, they will think, Oh man, they've really gone off the deep end now. (laughs) (laughs) But I implore you guys to, you know, just sit in for the ride and listen. If you don't agree with, with the, uh, the things we're going to touch upon today, that's fine. At least you are more educated. And another thing, you better hope that the hollow earth theory because it's a theory not just a hypothesis you better hope it will catch on because it will be the best antidote out there to 
the flat earth. The flat <laughs> earth is having a field day with all the mysteries regarding, for example, the poles. And I think the whole of earth will be the best. You know, Brooks, I usually say that the flat earth is a distraction from the whole of earth. Well, it could be. I, I don't have much to say about the flat earth. I, <laughs> uh, once I got past sixth grade mathematics, <laughs> pretty much made the flat earth impossible. Yeah. And for me, when I reincarnated myself away from the med- medieval ages, that's when I scrapped that <laughs> paradigm. And, and I also used to say that the ancient aliens, although I don't reject that there may have been such a thing but you know the tendency to explain everything with aliens is a distraction from the ancient antediluvian civilization human civilization and indeed i also think that the uh, we never went to the moon meme is a distraction from the secret space program excellent so i think there's uh, here in, in our show we do acknowledge all these mysteries but we are not fan of all the explanations out there but Hollow Earth, I could think of no better chap to cover that with than you. And I think we should start because unlike the Flat Earth, the Hollow Earth has an historic case for it. Yep. In, in fact, you find it all over the world and very far back in time. So maybe we should start there, Brooks. What do you think? Sure. Um, when we, we started doing our research for the first book of the Ark of Millions of Years series, in 2001, which goes back a long way, but um, we uh, it took about three years to gather enough information to to publish that first book. And and mind you, we'd never written a book before, so we this was a totally nonfiction book. It had hundreds and hundreds of footnotes and references and photographs and graphs and quotations, and it was we took 44 of the ancient writings from ancient civilizations going back 5,000 years, wow. Babylonian and Mayan and Toltec and, and uh, Olmec and just unbelievable. Even, even uh, uh, early American Indian hmm. uh, uh, theories and, and ideas that came forward. And every single one of these ancient societies talked about very plainly, in their in their ideology, in let's we, some of them you could call a religion. Some of them were more uh, philosophy and historical viewpoints. Yeah, they talked about a life force coming out of the the center of the earth or the inside of the earth. That that the earth itself was not just this lump of molten rock floating through space that to, for them it was a living thing it had it had um, its own will it had its its uh, agreeable days and its disagreeable days and the interesting thing is it's not all just superstition it's not like oh we have to go please the volcano god <laughs> the virgin today no they have amazingly enough they had a good understanding of planetary systems, yeah. a good understanding of what a star was, what a sun was, what how planets revolved around uh, stars in orbits. And not all of these solar systems that we can see records of had nine planets. 
Some mm. of them eight, some had 11, some had 13. And the amazing thing is that even some of the star formations that it looked like some of the, uh, we could call them the shining ones, we can call them fallen angels. There are all kinds of names for them, different societies. But they were teaching the human race about elaborate uh, star systems and gravitational systems that that aren't from around here. We don't even mm. we don't even know where they are. We suspect maybe somewhere in what we call the Summer Triangle, uh, which is kind of hemmed in on the three apexes by um, the Cygnus uh, star system, which includes Sirius A and Sirius B out that way, and then Alpha Centauri and or Vega, and um, and like that. So mm. you have large triangle of stars we call it a triangle from here that's our perspective of it uh, but the interesting thing is it's not just the advanced civilizations like the Babylonians or the Egyptians or um, even the Mayans which had a very common and Tibetans mind you yeah the Tibetans well, well I'll talk about them in a moment but okay they, they came a little later Back around 3,000 to 3,500 to 4,500 years, hmm. these advanced civilizations that had advanced knowledge of astronomy, of cosmology, hmm. they understood the motion of planets, which is difficult to do. I mean, it, it doesn't appear as though they had the mathematical systems in place in their culture to be able to understand those kinds of things. What it appears is that they were taught these things by someone else, someone who did have that knowledge, someone who maybe, you know, came from that area or maybe even from an ancient civilization that mm. knew this and they got wiped out and their knowledge was passed forward. I mean, I'm talking going back maybe 500,000 years or 3 million years, mm. these old, old civilizations that left complex record behind that was recovered by a by a post what we would call a modern historian say 3800 years ago and then they learned from those records and created their own history yeah yeah are you from when you start talking millions then i have to ask you are you familiar with the exploded planet hypothesis and um, dr Oh, what's his name again? Oh, we've covered him in a show recently called Ancient War in Heaven, but it's this uh, prominent American scientist. He died uh, not so many years ago, and he launched this, uh, I would say discoveries is the best word, actually, that all the comets and meteorites uh, origin from the same point, namely the oh. planet, well, now it's just... Ceres is just a chunk of it, but it's the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. And that would have to have happened some uh, millions of years ago. I think it's either three or 25. But are, are you aware who I'm talking about at all? Well, I'm, I'm familiar with Emmanuel Velikovsky. And then I'm... It's not him, though. ...with, uh, with uh, Michael Cremo, who wrote a book called Forbidden Archaeology. These are... yeah. There, I mean, there's archaeology is a, the study of you know ancient science, but also or, or ancient civilizations, but also it kind of runs up against anthropology, 
which is the study of ancient civilizations. And the conflict that they normally have is archaeology has a tendency to lean on geologists. Like a geologist will say, well, this clay sediment right here, this clay sediment is 500,000 years old because we know the layers above it. Mm. And we know generally, you know, here's an area where there was massive flooding, where there was massive ice age. And so we know that this sedimentary layer here is 500,000 years old. And, and right in the middle of this sediment, undisturbed sedimentary layer is a skeleton of a man. Yeah. So we say to ourselves, okay, well, is that man, according to the archaeologists, 10,000 years old? Or according to the geologists, is he 500,000 years old? Hmm. You see, this is where these sciences kind of run up against each other and have, have a conflict based upon the way that they extrapolate their science. And that is really, really important because we have basically two philosophies, two core philosophies that go behind all these sciences. One is called humanism. And in, in humanism, we the way we look at science, we look at it uh, as a system, as a process, as a total system. We, for instance, we could go to a kitchen sink where we see a graduated cylinder sitting under the faucet and the faucet is dripping and the graduated cylinder is half full. And so we pull out our trusty calibrated stopwatch and we count the number of drops that are dripping every minute. And we do this for five minutes and then we extrapolate. We go backwards in time and say, aha, I know how long that graduated cylinder has been sitting in that sink. And that's humanism. Mm. They say that the forces and energies that are working on our world today are the same forces and the same energies that have always worked on it. And so we can just use a small snapshot of one or two lifetimes here on this planet, and we can extrapolate back millions of years. They're just interpreting and then projecting, if you ask me. Yes, they are interpolating, or they are what we call extrapolating. They basically are taking a 12-inch ruler, and they're putting their eye down next to it and looking <laughs> out 20,000 miles. Mm. This is how they uh, measure distance, which is fine because that's all they have. Mm. But the other philosophy, and this is really important to note, the other philosophy, for lack of a better term, we call it catastrophism. Yeah. That is that we have the same kitchen sink, we have the same graduated cylinder, we have the same dripping water. But what we take into consideration is before you got there with your trusty calibrated stopwatch, someone was in the kitchen and was running the faucet and then shut it off and left the room and left it dripping. And so actually the faucet's only been there for a few minutes, not really several hours, like you're saying, because actually the energies and forces that are working upon our environment right now are radically different than the ones that worked on it mm. thousands or tens of thousands or millions of years ago. Mm. So you take into consideration this, this core philosophy and it affects the way a scientist looks at hypothesis, how he puts together an experiment and, and what weight he puts on those experiments. We have errors that we, we 
Hey. Or a viewpoint. Can you can you hear me? Yes. There's something wrong with the sound. You're coming and going. Oh. Um, I think uh, let's hang up and and call back. Okay. No problem. Yeah. Yeah, you should be able to hear me fine. Yep, I'm hearing you fine now. Okay, I don't know what happened. There's Arlene in this building, so I'm the only person drawing on this internet, so it should be. Same here. Um, let's hope it's the powers that be, because then they're actually giving us confirmation that we're onto something here. <laughs> well, we haven't got good stuff yet. I'm just laying the foundation. I know, I know. They're, they're already getting their feet cold. <laughs> By the way, the scientist I tried to remember was Tom von Flander. You should really look into him. You love him. I know Tom. Yeah. Oh, I, you knew I would... it. Yeah, yeah, you go. Right? Last guys to interview him before he passed away. Oh, wow. He was a very, very brilliant and very well-published astronomer, actually. Yep. Uh, Tom Flander, and he was uh, he he supported the idea of hollow earth theory publicly, or or you know, yes, publicly. He did it on my program too. Uh, he oh wow, he, he wrote a great book, a huge book, and actually very well written. So he's uh, you know normally astronomers they don't talk much. In fact, you don't really get to see their faces much because no. every time I go out with astronomers on a dark sky event. We never turn the lights on, so we, <laughs> we don't know what we look like. We know what we sound like, but we don't know what we look like. But I, I really like Tom. Tom was a great guy. Died much, much too too soon. Yes, he did. Mm. Yes, he did, because we really need his his intellect and his open mind now. Yeah. So the, the story goes that, you know, we, we approached all of this ancient science with an open mind. In in a catastrophism kind of way, and somebody along, you know, this line handed me a book about the hollow earth as I was doing my research for the Ark of Millions of Years, hmm. and it kind of threw me off a little bit. I I read it and I thought, oh boy, that's really amusing, and so I put it up on the shelf, and I stayed with the ancient stuff, and we we really didn't address it for probably. 1500 pages or so in our in our work mm. and then uh as we were producing volume two and then volume three it took a number of years to write all of this 2000 pages worth wow um more experiments were being done they were spending a lot of money on satellites on on um different kinds of Space experiments, oceanographic experiments, seismographic experiments. First of all, the fact that they were running the experiments was suspicious to me. Mm. I thought we already knew all this stuff. Why are we spending mm. all this to gather this data? But then the data started coming back from the experiments. And, and every single time we got the information back from these experiments – it seemed to throw into doubt the way we always thought our planet was made, or at least modern science. We thought we lived on this big, you know, molten ball of rock floating through space, and every once in a while, you know, the crust would move around a little bit, and we'd have some volcano or an earthquake or whatever, and that's the way we thought our planet was made. And, and um, we began to see hard evidence 
that that th- not only threw that into doubt, but started to support some of these ancient ideas mm. that there's kind of life force that that is supplied to life, to living things on this planet coming from inside the planet. And uh, when we get to the scientific portion of this, I'll share some of that information with you because it's quite it's quite stunning. Uh, just a little, I have registered is is mind blowing, because sometimes it points in a direction where you just don't have any other options than to conclude. But I I, I just want to say before we move on, uh, I want to since you're talking about how we uh, encounter these things, mm-hmm. my, many of my listeners regard me as a relatively rational guy, as rational I guess as you can be regarded when you are you know flirting with woo <laughs> and alternative stuff. But for me, it was it was kind of similar, but I'm a collector of esoteric stuff, and I've been delving into especially Western esotericism, but I've been looking for archives of mystery schools, and I've, I've found there's so many in the past that's died out, and, and then that stuff often ends up in second-hand market, and I started to notice a pattern. And that was that many of the old mystery schools had one thing in common. Well, they had several, but especially one that surprised me. And that was that in their high degrees, in their innermost classes, they were talking about the whole of Earth. That's great. <laughs> and I, the first time I encountered it, I thought that was just like a, a curiosity. But then I saw different traditions who's not even related. And then I had to start taking notes, right? And... So, so, so that was very interesting. And I, I see also that, like you say, the scientific stuff kind of corroborates the ancient stuff. And, and, and also another point is that many of these ancients, they were very specific about the knowledge. They had incredibly detailed knowledge about, you know, some things that you thought they shouldn't have. Yep. So why would they, when it comes to the hollow earth, suddenly start to be poetic and take interpretational license? In fact, I, I think that the only place where you can kind of think that's what's going on is in Christianity, which is a very young and a copycat religion. Also, to a far extent, many of the things they had from others. And I think that when they talk about hell being in the center of the earth, I think that's a degenerative kind of reflection of an original science. But otherwise, I think the ancients were right on the money. Well, you really you really raise some great points there because uh, that is exactly what a lot of these ancient civilizations did. For most for most religions, most traditions that we see that are that have that have established themselves in history and developed a, a rather large following, they're usually started by some charismatic, some hmm. guy who was really good at the language and really brilliant as far as being able to discern the thoughts of others, you know, by the tone of their voice or the look of their face. And so he was able to uh, garner great power and have people that followed him uh, for sometimes centuries. Mm. But when these ancient traditions where they're talking about planets or they're talking about, uh, for instance, a great flood. There's no charismatic. There's mm. no, you know, the word according to this prophet or that prophet. Mm. There's no, there's no one uh, being that you could point to that 
that leads you in the right direction or leads you in that direction. Instead, what you see is a plethora of evidence. You see Babylonian scrolls with solar systems and the sizes of the planets and the distances of their orbits according to size. Mm. Um, you see things that relate to, especially if you go to Egypt, you go to Dendera, you go to Abydos, you see these elaborate drawings of the movement of energy from one being to another or from an object to people or from people to an object. And it's always related to earth energy. Mm. Uh, they, they do talk about our underworld. They talk about a river. But honestly, I look at some of the everything from their boats that they have to the Osiris device that's in Abydos. They don't look like boats to me. They look like wormholes. They look exactly like Einstein-Rosen bridges that, mm. you know, in, in physics class that we learned from from Einstein and Rosen and, and uh, Planck. And, you know, we learned this from them, that gra great gravitational forces that are concentrated in small areas in space have a tendency to bend space-time. They mm. warp space-time. They pull the fabric of the universe down to a small area, sort of like uh, rolling a heavy bowling ball in a bedsheet that's held very tightly by four people. And popularized, you know, through the Stargate universe uh, movies. Yeah. And kind of like that. We don't really know about that. We have, we know, well, we have some thought experiments that uh, some of my colleagues have proposed, and we we do respond back to those thought experiments with our own ideas. Some of them are confrontational. Some of them are an alternative. Mm. But one of the thought experiments is that uh, there is a structure in the universe called the black hole. And this black hole is formed when so much matter occupies such a small space that the gravitational pull is so strong that even photons of light cannot escape. Up until a couple of years ago, maybe not that long, maybe only a year ago, these structures were highly theoretical. We, we, just, we just were running the standard model. We were putting enough energy and enough mass into the standard model. We kept coming up with this structure called black holes. Maxwell, Clerk, and others were great mathematicians, or a lot of physicists are not great mathematicians. They're great thinkers. They're great theorists, but they're not great mathematicians. But Clerk mm. Max was a great mathematician, and he he proved, at least mathematically, that uh, black holes are have three properties about them. Number one is they're spinning at their maximum possible speed because they're conserving momentum, and the way the equation is, everything is maxed out. It's the maximum amount of matter in the smallest amount of space, and so therefore it's spinning as fast as it can possibly spin. Also that, what we used to say, black holes have no hair. That is to say there's no mountains on them. There's no fingers sticking out. They're smooth and they're round. Mm -hmm. But one of the other things that came out in this is that they're not necessarily spherical. Because, yes, they're round, but they're not necessarily spherical because they're spinning so fast. Heisenberg 
and others, and I mean, not alone because a lot of us have written papers on this now, we surmise that you can't locate the singularity behind the event horizon. You can't tell how fast it's going and you can't locate it. So that means that it obeys a Heisenberg uncertainty. That is to say, we don't know its exact location or its exact speed. So therefore, it's a probability. And this probability leads us to believe that black holes actually flatten out a little bit, like galaxies. They have a hump in the middle, which is where most of the energy is, but then they create this disk that goes out mm. Uh, 50, 80, 100, 10,000 light years. Uh, and that is actually the driving gravitational energy for all of the light in that galaxy. Hmm. It's, a, it's a really fascinating theory. And most of the galaxies do exhibit that kind of structure. Now, there are two laboratories, two observatories in the United States. One's in Hanford, Washington. The other's in Livingston, Louisiana. They're called the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatories. They go by the acronym LIGO or LIGO if you want. Hmm. And, and basically these are giant framing squares, interferometers that are made out of laser beams that go down at right angles to one another down these huge vacuum tunnels. It takes weeks to evacuate all the air out of these things. And they... I mean, uh, uh, Dr. Kip Thorne originally came up with the idea. Stephen Hawking supported it. Somehow they were able to go to the government, get a grant, and they built two of these things decades ago. And, you know, you think, well, okay, we build it, we run it, all right, we take the measurement, it's great. But no, there were so many technological challenges to this. First of all, the wavelength of the light had to be regulated to within a fraction of a wavelength, a fraction of a single wavelength. Then the mirrors had to be designed. They had to be super flat, flat less than an atom of variation across the surface of the mirror. The mirror had to be hung on a, on a weight, and then that weight hung by a piano wire so that the Earth's vibration wouldn't transfer to the mirror. And then they had to be able to synchronize these two uh, interferometers, one in, way up in Washington and the other way down in Louisiana. And that took not only high-speed internet, but it took high-speed switching for the servers and the computers. They have the fastest computers in the world, faster than Wall Street. Hmm. If, and that's super top secret. I mean, if you had access to these computers, you could actually get a view into the future of trading. You could make yourself the richest man in the world with these computers. Hmm. That's how powerful they are. Last year, they were able to synchronize the two interferometers so they could triangulate. That is to say, they used the curvature of the Earth so that each observatory is looking to a different corner of space. And when a gravitational wave came through our neck of the woods and warped space-time and these interferometers picked up that vibration, they were able to locate a black hole for the first time ever last year. Those Hard evidence. They're all going to win the Nobel Prize. There's no question about wow. it. It's the first time a black hole's ever really been, I want to use the word seen, but directly detected. <laughs> yeah. 
so that's a big thing because what that does, it tells us that um, Stephen Hawking's original thought experiment that some matter, some mass from our universe is leaking into another universe. Uh, he published the paper, and I don't want to go into the thought experiment because it'll it'll put everybody to sleep. But <laughs> is that some matter when it gets close to these black holes, it clones itself, and one of those clones falls into the black hole and ends up going to someplace else, some other universe, some other. Well, well, according to the Einstein Rosen theory, the the quasars, I think, where the um, uh, if if the black holes are the entrances, then the Opposite the 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 doors out would be the quasars, but but I'm not sure. Maybe the black holes are entrances to other dimensions, and the quasars are entrances from other dimensions. Maybe that's how they were thinking. Hard to say. Yeah. I know quasars are the largest visible structures in our universe, the largest ones we've ever observed, mm. and they pump out a lot of energy, right? What they do, these electrojets are amazing. They're pretty close to the speed of light, and so mm. much mass, so much energy and mass pours out of these things. Mm. And mm. we look at these structures, these quasars, and smaller things, which we call accretion disks, and we, we're sort of saying this is the way solar systems are formed. Uh, this is the way oxygen and silicon and carbon and all these things are being formed by these stars and these quasars. They're pumping elements into into our our atmosphere. But the most remarkable thing is uh, I was at the observatory in Washington uh, with a friend, and we were talking with Dr. Fred Robb. His name is spelled R A A B. Mm. And uh, we're just having a conversation because the presentation is over and we're kind of, you know, just having an interesting conversation. And he, he says, you know, we're seeing particles pop into our dimension from another dimension. Jeez. And I said, what? what? <laughs> he said, we're, we're seeing particles pop into our dimension from another dimension with this instrument. Now, this is a government-funded Observatory. It's our tax dollars, so you could go there. I don't know if you'd understand what was going on, but it's pretty cool. But if you <laughs> know what's going on, you can ask very high-level questions, and that's where we were. So he he volunteers this information, and what it did, it validated Stephen Hawking's assertion that part of our universe is leaking into another universe, but it opened a window into the idea that other universes are leaking into our universe hmm. and it's usually doing it we think it's doing it via these black holes or via these bridges that are built by these anomalies in gravitation but did the ancients have concepts of these things too Yes, they did. As a matter of fact, we went to the Mexico City Museum of Anthropology. And it's a fascinating museum. If you get a chance to go to Mexico City, please don't pass up this museum. Spend a day there if you can. Mm -hmm. But I go down and they have this, uh, this structure, this thing that was carved out of stone 1,200 years ago. That's a long time ago. Mm -hmm. 1,200 years ago. And it's... It looks artistic. It looks really great. But it, you know what it looks like? 
Al, it looks just like <laughs> it looks just like a rotating black hole. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is, you could see planets going through this portal from one side to the other. Planets, wow. just particles, whole planets. And what it did, it, it, it supported the idea, if you go to Genesis and you read it carefully as a scientist, you'll see that there are actually two creations. One is a planet that already exists. God goes down. He puts man and woman. He says, multiply and replenish the earth, till the earth, blah, 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 all that. Yeah. But the next creation he starts from scratch. He goes to this water planet, and his spirit moves across the face of the deep, and he decides to divide the waters from the waters. He splits this water planet. Yeah, Gospel of John now, isn't it? No, no, this is, this is Genesis. Genesis, okay. He splits this water planet, and then he moves them apart. He puts space stars in between them which means he's moving one of these planets now he moves it for a long time because there's no such thing as night or day on this world for till the end of the third creative period which it could be three thousand years or three million years we don't really know Mm. it's he calls it a day but what does that mean no like the hindu said the brahmans nights and days that's a matter of million of years <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah. so this planet is moved and it's moved according to uh the uh, mayans and according to the babylonians it's moved through the rift in the Milky Way. If you look at the Milky Way, you'll notice there's a dark kind of patch through it. This is an area where the gravity is so strong that all the light's being pulled away from this area. It doesn't reach us because it's being bent away from us by this gravitational field. Mm -hmm. This is the path that Earth took to get here. That Earth, the water Earth. And then the two Earths were melded together in what we, we call this the union of the polarity in our books, The Ark of Millions of Years. But the ancients had all kinds of names for this uh, merging of these two worlds, one temporal earth and one spiritual earth, or one earth of rock and metal and another one of water and, and spirit and puts them together. Mm. Sort of like the human body, you know, where we're this a bag of calcium and protein and water, but we're also this animated spirit inside this body that makes it move around and do stuff. Yeah. Earth is the same way. At least this is what the ancients were claiming. And so that, that is ba- that's the basis for 44 ancient traditions, not the least of which is Christianity, for sure. Mm. Okay, so let's say the catastrophism school which is, of course, uh, science-based, but, but they are in line with the ancient uh, claims. Now, let's say they're right, there was uh, some kind of catastrophe. Now, how do we square this with the hollow earth? Because I've always thought that if there were, like the ancient reports, in the old times there were permanent seasons, that means that the axis of the earth hadn't tilted yet. And so you would have like paradise, basically. Yep. Obviously, you would have winter, permanent winters, uh, 
um, at the poles, but then you would have like gradual. Now we know it's not. But then I've been thinking they could also refer to and we're going to get more into this later, you know, how try to conceive how it would be inside the Earth. But let's preconceive that already now and say that there would be gradual seasons also inside the Earth. So that maybe that's what they were referring to. Or it could be both on the outside once upon a time and now only the inside. And, and another thing that ties the catastrophism to the whole of Earth, obviously, is, and maybe you can elaborate on this, is the Egyptian myths. Maybe they're not the only ones, but at least there they're talking about taking refuge inside the Earth to avoid a catastrophe. Yes, they do. Uh, there is a, a, a writer, uh, she called herself Om Seti. Uh, her, her actual English name was Dorothy Eddy. And she claimed to be the reincarnated daughter, a reincarnated woman uh, of a virgin who worked at Abydos during the reign of Seti. And so she goes down to Egypt and she's old already. She's in her late 60s, I think, or maybe early 70s. And she makes contact with a government official who is a former uh, sugar plantation manager. And his name is um, Hani Alzani. And she makes the representation to him in her, in her heavy English accent. Uh, <clears throat> my name is Dorothy Eddy, but my, my real name is Om Seti. And uh, I'm from Abydos. I was, I was born there and I know everything about it. Well, at that time, Abydos was uh, a village, but there was. What, what time are we at now? Uh, in the 50s. Oh, so this is the predecessor of Sahih Havas. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Carmen Bolter has spoken so well of him. Well, in, in not, any... Not Havas, of course, but the predecessor. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Go on. So, um, Hani Alzani is put in charge, because he's a trusted capitalist there in Egypt, to to go and find Abydos and try to follow up on the things that, that Dorothy Eddy is saying. So they go out there and it's just, it's all buried in sand. I mean, people have been living there for, you know, thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And then she says, okay, over here uh, there's a temple and underneath the temple there's another ancient structure called the Osirian which was here way before um, before Seti got here and the reason he came here. And over here there's a wall and so they started to dig and dig and dig, and lo and behold, everything was right where she said it was. Mm. So they uncovered it, and she began to translate the hieroglyphs into English. Now, these were never published, but I went to Hani Elzani's residence in Cairo, and he retrieved the manuscript that uh, Dorothy Eddy had handwritten in her own hand, and I got to open them up and go through them, and you're exactly correct. In the manuscripts, and I took photographs of this myself, the hieroglyphs were translated into English to say that when the cataclysm came, they escaped into the earth. Hmm. In Egypt, or do they move away from Egypt to get into the earth? Not really sure. 
it doesn't. Well, that's interesting because <clears throat> the most interesting thing for me is the Poles things. And we're going to get to that, folks. But there is also, of course, many, many relations. I mentioned the Tibetans and, and others talk about caves and caverns where you can find entrances to the inner earth, not just in the poles, but like, I don't know, shortcuts or smaller entrances. And to many people, they can't swallow the pole things, the huge openings at the pole, but they can swallow that the earth is hollow in the sense that there's a lot of open pockets and caverns and stuff. That's as far as many people can go. But I think that's actually less likely because you need a light source, especially if you're going to find civilizations or, you know, if people are going to escape and live down there. Uh, <laughs> well, let's, uh, just think of it. let's think of it practically. Yeah. Let's, let's take the book Edidorfa, which is Aphrodite spelled backwards. Oh, right. The thing is that, uh, that the explorer entered Mammoth Cave and he walked into the inner earth from Mammoth Cave. So I went to Mammoth Cave myself several times. I spent several summers there. Where, where is it? It's in Kentucky, Edmondson County, Kentucky. Oh, right. Okay. So I, I, of course, took the tours, but then I also met with the people that actually explore the rest of the cave. And I spoke to one of the individuals who's been as deep, and he's a, he's a caver. He gets into these, these very small areas. He's a spelunker. Hmm. I said, how deep is the deepest part of the cave? He said, the deepest part of the cave is 360 feet. That's a long way. Hmm. 360 feet. That's the deepest. Excuse me. How much is that in meters? That's about 120 meters. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, the crust has to be a little thicker than that in order. <laughs> I would hope so for our sake. <laughs> right, right. So, um, the next experiment that was done or the data that was gathered was in St. Louis at Washington University. There was the geology department. It was run by a, a professor named Dr. Y. Sessions. And Dr. Y. Sessions um, developed a project where he gathered up 600,000 seismograms. These are made by the USGS. Every time there's a big earthquake on the planet, all of the listening stations around the world can pick up that vibration. And they create a, a system of seismograms from the source of the earthquake all the way to the other side of the planet. And so what he decided to do was take his geology graduate students and computers and they would go through all these seismograms and they would develop a kind of CAT scan of the earth. They'd take all these vibrations and they would come up with the image of what the inside of the planet looks like. Mm. And what they developed was a crust that was between 800 and 900 miles thick. Of course, inside this crust is the mantle, and it's it's moving all the time because of tidal gravity from not only orbit around our sun, but also being tugged on it by the moon and other uh, gravitational forces that are coming through our solar system. So the, the, the crust is moving. It's undulating all the time. Very small amounts, but still, that's a lot of energy. Mm. So then you get in about eight or 900 miles, all of a sudden, there's nothing. It's just 
There's no vibrations transferred at all. So we say to ourselves, but that can't be. You know, we're, we're 7,100 miles in diameter. We're 21, almost 22,000 miles in circumference. It can't just be a crust. And in fact, it is not. Other universities were making measurements trying to determine what the core is made of. And two different universities determined that the core of the Earth is made almost entirely of iron. But it's not molten iron. It's crystallized iron. And it exists somewhere between 5,500 and 6,000 degrees C, which means it's the same temperature as the surface of the sun. But it's not hydrogen. It's not a fusion. It's just iron. But at that temperature... Iron will glow white hot. It will actually put off photons of light in the white, in the white light range. There are those who say it's a plasma. No, it's a plasma is a gas that can conduct electricity. Mm. So it's it's um, it could be. But here's the thing: you've got space between the core and the inside of the crust. Mm. A lot of space, like maybe over a thousand miles of space. But hang on, couldn't that be stone? Or would they get a reading if there was stone? They would get they would, they would a reading if there was stone. They would, yeah, okay. So it has to be vacuum. Well, there's a, there's a couple other pieces of data to consider here. Mm-hmm. The other mm-hmm. is the distance the Earth is from the sun and the amount of time it takes the Earth to go around the sun. So we know generally how much the Earth is supposed to weigh. Mm. Pretty close, within a, a few million kilograms. Uh, the issue is that Earth is not, given its diameter and what we suspected was its density originally, the Earth is not in the orbit where it's supposed to be. It's off by about 1,200 kilometers. Hmm. That means that there's a void inside the planet, that the core and the crust make up a weight, a set of weight, but there's missing weight. That's what, and, and once you take away that weight, the Earth is right exactly where it's supposed to be. Hmm. So that means that you have this core that's rotating and you have a crust that's rotating and they're rotating on exactly the same axis. But the core is rotating much faster than the crust. And so this counter-rotation is what creates the magnetosphere around our planet and a rush of magnetic energy that goes out of our planet on the north and the south and illuminates the ionosphere in what we call the borealis. Mm -hmm. One over the north pole and one over the south pole. Yeah, and according to... Actually, I'm going to ask you about that later, uh, about the Borealis. But I want to move a little bit back to the ancients because we see that uh, these myths, they're not going away. And and even up to when modern times starts with the industrial age and stuff, we see many of these myths coming out in the popular uh, literature. For example, we all know about Jules Verne, right, and his journey to the end, um, center of the earth. Sure. But we have another chap, there were many of those, but one I want to promote a little is from my hometown in Bergen. His name is Ludwig Holberg. He was very famous back in the day and he went to a cavern which is actual. This is a story. He went into that cavern and allegedly he meditated there and came back after some time 
And then he wrote the book Nils Klim's Strange Journeys. And that's a story about a chap who goes into that exact cave, <laughs> which I've been in. Superb. And he, after a long while, he comes to the inner civilization. So we have this claim of a civilization. It doesn't go away. By the way, me and our fellow uh, many, many years ago went to explore. We had uh, breathing equipment like the divers have. <laughs> we were dead sad to find out what he had seen, right? Uh-huh. And what do you know? After a while, what do we see? Uh, a bar, is that what you say? Like you have in prison? Oh, really? That's- yes, we, you can't enter. It's so typical. Well, if we think about it practically, if you were to say you wanted to walk from where you live to 900 miles away on flat ground. Yeah. It would take you probably a couple of months to make that walk of 900 miles, maybe more. If you're re- How many meters are we talking about here? Uh well, 900 miles uh would be about Two kilometers. Probably about pretty close to 2000 kilometers. Okay, I see. It's long. I see. So take time to- <laughs> that's, a, that's a long, yeah. But that's flat ground. If if you were on a forty-five degree angle, which is very steep, and if you walk on a forty-five degree angle for twenty minutes, your legs are going to be burning like fire. But if you were to walk at forty-five degrees, now you've increased that distance from nine hundred miles or from two thousand kilometers to pretty close to 3,000 kilometers. That's even further. Hmm. In order to walk that distance, you would have to have a caravan of supplies, light, food, water, medicine. You'd have to have a change of socks. Hmm. There's no way you could make it. It would, it would take an army to walk to, that to, to get to the inner, absolute inner, yes. But at some point, you could get so far that you realize there is a journey ahead of you. That's the interesting bit, you know. Right. And, uh, and I think when we see these reports of people who have encountered, because one of the few books I found about the hollow earth, and this was before I knew about you too. There's so much crap out there, but I did find an interesting, two interesting books by a chap called Eric Norman. He published back in the sixties and he gave, you may be familiar with him, but he gave a fairly decent, I would say, account of, of, of the story. But the, the one is called, this solar earth, the other one is called the underground people or something like that, under earth, underworld people. And that brings me back to the myths and the legions because we have a lot of them here in Norway. You know, uh, trolls and what I could just uh, translate as dwarfs. Not all is translatable. We have something called Nissa. Oh. And many of these people were underground people, you know, and they came up and they abducted um, women, for example. We have, uh, for example, you know, this famous tune. Exactly. And that's about the king of the mountain. The hall. Mountain King. Exactly, yes. So we have we have that ingrained. My grandfather, who was an atheist, he was like a union worker man, like he was a miner, okay? Mm-hmm. And he wouldn't hear anything about religion or, or, or fantasy or anything, but he swore, and he was a miner. And nobody in the, or his family believed him, except for me, because I could see he wasn't kidding. He wasn't a humorous guy at all. Uh-huh. But he swore he had encountered 
uh, what we call uh, Nissa, which are these creatures from, from the earth. So I'm thinking you, maybe you don't even have to go all the way to the center to get to, you know, Agartha, uh, whatever. Maybe you would find something already before you get that far that could confirm that something is going on. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. That's my suggestion. Thoughts? <laughs> well, <clears throat> There is a lot of evidence. I mean, somebody asked me one time, do you think there's, you know, advanced civilizations inside the planet? And I said, look, you're, you're, you're really accessing the little boy in me because, you know, I'm, I read comic books too. But, uh, you know, when you start looking at the science and you look at why sessions work and you say, not only did he find this void, but they also discovered another ocean underneath the crust. As big as the Atlantic Ocean, yeah, they they picked up the waves crashing on the shore inside the planet. Jeez. So I said, and I have said this several times before, if there is a void inside the planet, there most certainly will be life there. That's the way life works on Earth. Mm. Is it microbial or is it more advanced, like a fish or a dinosaur or a bird? It's hard to say. Is it more advanced, like a, like a, another kind of civilization that can't take radiation from the sun, but they can take light from another source, maybe an innocuous one, like an iron-based light? Yeah. Uh, and I would, I would say, based on, you know, the space exploration that we've done, that for at least a thousand light years in every direction. There's no other planet like Earth anywhere. Living on the surface of a planet is is not common. It's not mm. the way uh, you would normally exist out there, you know, in the galaxy. And there are other examples, even in our own solar system, of two planets existing in one sphere. We just recently learned, this year, we just uh looked at the data of the planet Uranus. Uranus is, is a planet in our uh, solar system that's way more tilted than Earth. Earth is tilted about 23 and a half degrees on its axis, but, but uh, Uranus is tilted almost 90 degrees. It's really got a, a terrible uh, orientation on its axis. It, and we always wondered about that. But now we know because of the probes that we've sent out there and the measurements that we've taken, which take decades and decades to gather enough information. Uranus was actually struck by another planet. And that planet is currently inside of Uranus. Wow. It's inside there. We we can see the thermal signature of this other world inside that world. Is that why Uranus is spinning so weird, backwards or something? Yes, exactly. So it's not a crazy assumption that Earth at one time was maybe straight up and down on its axis. If it did have a winter, it wasn't much of one. Um, you had pretty much a temperature equilibrium because there's no spring, there's no there's no summer, there's no winter. It's the same all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and then now Earth is tilted 23 and a half degrees on its axis. But it doesn't take much more than a nine-year-old to look at the average globe to see that all of the continents yeah. easily fit together yeah. on all sides. which Including Antarctica. 
Yeah, including Antarctica, which means that Earth, in order for that to really be true, Earth would have to be about one-third its present size in diameter. Yeah, under-expanding Earth theory. Right, exactly, exactly. And the Earth is still expanding. We're still seeing it expand. So you subscribe to that? Absolutely. Interesting. So it's expanding at a much slower rate now because the crust has slowed way down. But when it was one-third its present size, it was spinning, of course, three times faster. Mm. Hmm. So, uh, but what you said now, uh, rewind a little, it blew my mind because I just realized, it's the way you framed it too, it really, I'm pretty sure many who listened realized the same thing if they haven't thought about it before. And that's that. If there is life on other planets, not just in the Goldilocks zone, you know, we're thinking very conventionally outside of the planet. If everyone has an inner sun, there could be basically life on every physical planet. Sure. On this solar system and in every other solar system, which means already, if you discount that, if you just think about the Goldilocks zone, there's still innumerable planets with lives. I don't, they have a number I've, don't remember what it was, but it's so much that it's it's just even the most materialist, conventional-minded person acknowledges that, yes, there is intelligent life out there. But when you now suggest this with potential life inside a planet due to the inner sun and all that, Mars, every planet in our, Pluto even, that really makes the universe a much smaller place than we thought. <laughs> <laughs> much more uh, much more of a neighborhood yeah because because if you look at at the gravity on the inside of a planet just go by newton's uh, mathematics the closer you get to the center of a planet the less the gravity becomes that's so real when we look at a you know the kepler program is out there looking at exoplanets and when we see one that is quote unquote Earth-like, that is to say it has liquid water on the surface, and we think, oh, it could support life. It's also three to five times larger in mass than our Earth, which means if I went to that planet and tried to stand up, I would weigh about 475 pounds. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't move out of my own shadow. I'd be crushed. But on the inside of that planet, gravity might be much milder, much more easy to, to manage. Mm. Yeah, and in part two, I'm going to ask you to account for how we visualize the the gravity condition inside. Okay. I want to say about the oceans you said, I think it's two Japanese scientists discovered also that there is more ocean under our oceans sure. than over. And what I'm thinking is, of course, they're not necessarily thinking a hollow earth kind of thing, but although they are already there, I have to acknowledge there's some hollow phenomenon going on. But if it's really, you know, the inner oceans they are onto, then they have to have gone through. There had to be some kind of earth between our oceans and those oceans. So maybe they're just measuring at the thinnest. How thick do the hollow earth paradigm imagine that? Uh, is it the crust is the word, you know, the, the earth between ours and theirs? The, the crust, according to the size, seismological imaging that we've done, yeah. is between 800 and 900 miles thick. But I have to throw a cautionary uh, note in here. These measurements were all made below the 50th parallel. 
So all of the data was gathered below the 50th parallel. We do not have uh, seismological data above the 60th, the 70th, the 80th parallel. We don't really have an image of that. There's not much knowledge known. And when we look at, you know, satellites going over the earth, and we believe me, I've looked at probably more than 30,000 images of the earth from space, from weather satellites. The, the poles, the areas that we're talking about exploring, they're constantly covered with clouds. They're never clear. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's where the atmospheric river is moving billions of gallons of water around our planet. But it, it is in an area where that becomes a thick vapor and you can't see through it. No, and, and, and the few pictures that I do release actually shows what can only be called holes. Well, I mean, you have to understand the way uh, satellites take images. They don't take a picture of the entire planet. They're not, they're not far enough up. They're only a few hundred miles. So they take a strip picture. Yeah. yeah. And then what they do is they, they patch the strips together to to make a whole image. Yes, it comes a black circle. That's not the one I'm referring to. I'm referring to two different things. One is, I think it's from, uh, was it Apollon? It was one of these uh, astronaut photo from one of the astronaut missions. The other I'm thinking of, which is very frequent, uh, I can send you some if you like, but you're probably aware, is uh, the Aurora and there's a rare clarity and there's a black hole. Oh. Not very clear. You have to you have to look for it at the same spot all the time in the center. Okay, that's what I'm thinking. And so it's it's kind of under clothes, it's under the aurora, but you can still see it. Mm, interesting. Well, we've, yeah. we've got a couple of uh, exoplanet photographs. Yeah, one is from uh, one of the old rovers on Mars after it lost its ability to drive around. The camera still worked. The, the, the solar panel would have enough energy to energize the camera. So the rover can't drive around, but it can take pictures. Mm. So Caltech runs this, this project. And the guy that at Caltech that runs it, his name is, was Dr. Jim Bell. I don't know who's inherited it since then. But uh, one of the experiments that they did after they took pictures all the way around it, which was nothing really interesting around around the uh, the probe, they tilted the camera all the way back so they could take pictures of the sky. Uh -huh. And they started taking pictures of the night sky. And, of course, you know, Mars has a gigantic orbit. The closest it gets to Earth is about 37 million miles. But it goes a long ways away. It goes, like, close to 57 million miles away on the far side. Mm -hmm. Invisible from Earth. So it's on the close side. It's at night. It's clear. And guess what it catches in its camera? A picture of Earth with the moon around it. Uh -huh. All the way from Mars, like 38 million miles away. Uh -huh. Of course, they blew the, the image up. And it's a little fuzzy, but you can make, you can see Earth and you can <sighs> see its moon around it. The second image was much more stunning and it is a very recent photograph that was taken by the chinese probe that is orbiting the moon uh -huh. 
It has been taking high-resolution pictures of the surface of the moon for a long time, and they've used together, and we've got some of the data. I don't think they're sharing all of it with no, us, but no. one of the pictures that it recently took was of Earth from the moon. You can see the horizon of the moon, and then over the horizon you can see Earth 250,000 miles away. It's probably the best picture we have of our planet actually you know, in space. And did we see something at the poles? Unfortunately, you can't see the poles mm. from the moon. The moon is uh, not a polar orbit. <laughs> but but speaking of the freak that is the moon, and we're not even going to touch all the moon anomalies because then we'll be sitting here for a week. But <laughs> that has been said to ring like a bell too. I mean, people commonly regard that as hollow but would you think right. if it's i mean it may be artificial for all we know but if it's natural it should have these weird uh curves at the poles uh suggesting maybe some kind of hole going on I don't have know. you have you seen anything like that do you know no we did two experiments one was the elcon experiment which i think was in 2006 the Elcon experiment, we, we had a probe that was orbiting the moon, and on the probe was a about um, a thousand kilogram weight, just a slug. No. And the experiment was that once this probe got over the pole, because we could see the poles of the moon from Earth sideways, that is to say we can look across them. We can't look down on it, but we can look across it. So we have a spectrometer, a spectrographic telescope. We're looking at the moon. We drop the slug on the pole of the moon. It strikes the surface. Of course, it blows a huge amount of material up from the impact. And we take a spectrographic image of the dust and the stuff that it blows up into the air. And what we discovered from that is there's a tremendous amount of water locked into the soil of the moon. But there's also a tremendous amount of what's called helium-3, which exists on Earth, but very rarely. Most of the helium we have on the Earth is helium-4, or it's you know a, a, a gas that we use to inflate balloons. But helium-3 is very energetic. That is to say, its decay can be managed very easily, and there's a tremendous amount of energy in very little mass of those two protons. So it's helium-3 is, is something we really could use as energy. That was exciting to everyone. But the other thing that was discovered is on the moon, there are these volcanic vents. I mean, we say they're volcanic vents. <laughs> they're awfully round i mean really round which is not the way a volcanic vent would look mm. a volcanic vent would look a little bit like an axe cut in the ground it would look like a gash mm. no these are really round and they're about three to four hundred meters across they're they're rather large mm. and they go back into the crust about 15 kilometers now, there's nothing coming out of them. So if there is any volcanic activity on the moon, it was a long time ago. And many people, and I'm one of them, uh, were writing papers and idea 
uh, suggestions that we take over one of those openings, one of those volcanic openings, and seal it up. It wouldn't take much material at all. We could, in fact, we could put a 3D printer up there and we could print a cap for it. Jeez, wow. Take a couple of years to do, but it would run on its own <laughs> yeah. on light. But you could seal it up and then you would have uh, an environment inside the moon where a base could be built. Mm. You wouldn't have to worry about meteorites or solar flares or any of that stuff. And maybe... Once you seal it up, maybe some of that water can be turned into oxygen and you can actually create an environment on the inside of the moon. Now, you say it ring like a bell that when the first missions to the moon went, one of the things the astronauts were trained to do as scientific experiments is to place seismometers, just like we have on Earth, seismometers on the moon with transmitters on them because we were trying to see if there's any kind of seismic activity on the moon. And so when the eagle lifted off the moon, it burned up all the fuel that it had in the can, and then it jettisoned the can. It jettisoned the base, mm. which probably only weighed a few hundred pounds in that gravity. But it fell back to the moon as the eagle was going out and achieving orbit and linking up with the ship that was going to come back to Earth, that can, the empty fuel can, fell back to the planet. And when it struck, the geo, the, the, the seismometers on the moon picked up the vibration. Hmm. And when it hit the ground, now they thought, okay, well, fine, it makes a big thud when it hits the ground. Except that the, cr the crust rang for two hours. Hmm. Two hours they saw that vibration. Can't you tell a lot about the interior of the moon when it rings for two hours? No. I mean, I wish you could. We, we, if we had seismometers all over the planet and we did it again, yeah. then, then we could do the same thing we do on the Earth. We could have, do that CAT scan and tell what's on the inside. Okay. But the fact that, that that aluminum can, which probably didn't weigh but just a few hundred pounds empty, that it struck the Earth or struck the moon and made that kind of signal yeah. had made people scratch their heads for six years. Yeah. So, so uh, fragile little thing too. Hey, we're soon going to, we're halfway, we're going to take a break, but I want you to share with us one more tidbit before we take that break. Okay. Because I would still say this belongs to the myth domain and that's and to the Nazis. Now, we know they were, uh, many of them at least, were deeply into the whole of Earth, but their take on it was so weird. <laughs> they thought we were living inside the whole of Earth and that if they found the entrances, they could... But I have no idea how they imagine it would look like, because when we look out there, we see space, we see uh, stars, right? And they would probably think uh, something similar must where do that does that come from how can you even explain such a weird version if it's not weird enough already how is this rationalized the one thing that we do know about uh, the early nazis is they had a lot of money they were they had money pouring in from all over the world different industrialists that were pouring money in there yeah. and what they didn't have they took <laughs> yeah, and that's the other thing. They went out and took gold and and uh, collectibles, and they explored everywhere. They went to Africa, they went to Asia, and one of the places that they went was 
Tibet. You mentioned Tibet earlier. Mm. I am probably, I don't know any other Westerner that has been to Tibet and has been able to get underneath the Patala into the ground, uh, underground levels under the Patala. I, wow. It was a pure fluke that I was able to get under there because it was all locked up. And I asked the Chinese guard, you know, if, if I could get in and, and my, my Tibetan guide said, don't ask him again. You can ask him one time, but if you ask him again, you're going to make him mad. Mm-hmm. So I asked and he shook his head no. And so I said, okay, fine. So I started walking away. And a couple minutes later, he tapped me on the shoulder. He said, yeah, yeah, come, come back. I'll, I'll, I'll open the door. You can go down there. And so he let us in. And you didn't have to pay him? No. We unchained the door and down we went. Mm. And when we walked down the stairs, which I don't know if anybody would walked down those stairs in maybe 30, 40 years. But we got down to the bottom. Of course, it was pitch black, so we turned our lights on. On the floor, in the stone of the floor, was this gigantic swastika. It was maybe four meters across. And in the center of it was a big piece of turquoise, probably, uh, I don't know, maybe 20 centimeters across. Pretty good-sized piece of turquoise. So I asked my God, because this, this is built in this the 7th century, 646 A.D., mm-hmm. way, way, way before the Nazis. I said, what the heck? What, what is that swastika doing on the floor? And it's so old. He said, well, that's not a swastika. That's actually the Milky Way galaxy. Ah. They knew about the Milky Way galaxy in the 7th century. Now, of course, the Nazis discovered it, and maybe that's where they got the swastika in Mm. the first place, was from these ancient traditions. And, of course, they turned it into their symbol of, of whatever you want to call Nazism. But that symbol has existed for a long, long time. Hmm. But that wasn't the remarkable thing. The remarkable thing was what I photographed beside it. Right beside it, going up about 25, maybe 28 feet, uh, maybe close to 10 meters, was a magnificent gold structure. And it was covered in gems. And I took a picture of it. I I got the picture out. I was stopped at LAX by a man in a black uniform, and he went through all my pictures, and he didn't see that one. He didn't delete it. So I got it. I kept it. Excellent. But they call this a stupa, and the stupa is used uh, by their tradition to transport the soul of a Panchen Lama through a a a stargate through four dimensional stargate to another dimension. And the stargate is painted on the ceiling above this thing. But the remarkable thing is I told my guide, you know what this really looks like? It looks like a Tesla coil. Mm. And so sure enough, I got back to the States, dug up an archive photograph and it matched perfectly. Hmm. So I thought to myself, now, wait a minute, the ancient, Tibetan Buddhists saw this image. They had this vision, and they built this thing out of gold with gems on it. And they even had stylized lightning coming out of the top of it. Mm. Tesla, Nikola Tesla, had exactly the same vision, Mm. except he decided to interpret this dream and build a Tesla coil. His was electric. Theirs was 
artistic, spiritual, but it's the same thing. Yeah, but they do have uh, stories that you could. Uh, I mean, some monasteries are saying that they had entrances to the inner earth through these monasteries, and you were allowed pretty far down. Were you all the way to the end, or no? Uh, it's uh, only a couple hundred feet. And then you're you're to the ground, but we were already at eleven thousand five hundred feet. So that's a yeah. Uh, <laughs> you went even back down in the earth. There's no air. Let me tell you, there's no air. But uh, then we went across the Tibetan plateau because it was the dry season. No ice had melted, so the riverbeds were dry. And we went way way up one of the riverbeds to an old monastery. It's over a thousand years old. And we spent the day up there talking to them and trying to get them to tell us about Shambhala or some mm. some place, you know, where we could access at least the legend of the Hollow Earth. Mm. I think you can only get there this month. It was in April. You can only get there in the month of April because before then, it's too bloody cold. It's uh, <laughs> 20 mm. below zero all the time. And after that, it's flooded because the ice and glacier melts a little bit and that riverbed is full of water so it was really the only time we could go up there it's isolated from the world the rest of the time hmm. uh, and uh, I, I will tell you I wish I could have spent another couple of weeks up there but uh, truthfully it's about all I could take physically and I was in really good shape <laughs> I, I stayed in the gym for six weeks to get ready to go on this expedition and yeah. when I got I, I needed to sleep for like five days. It yeah. was tremendously physically draining, this expedition. Yeah, yeah, but you knew what you were going to. That's great. But but again, what about the North Sea paradigm that we are living inside the whole of Earth? Do you know how that can be explained even theoretically? No, I really don't. <clears throat> It's very weird, isn't it? It's like an inverse... Hollow Earth hypothesis. Okay, I'll not bother you with that then. We'll take that break now, and I'll bother you with the mainstream Hollow Earth theory when we come back. We're going to discuss it. We're going to see if we can make some kind of argument for it within a scientific paradigm. Okay. So don't go anywhere, people. We'll be right back. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Thanks. 